Psalm 96.3 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And that's one of the commands that you see in scripture. We're supposed to tell the world how great our God is. And specifically, we're supposed to talk about these stories where he shows his greatness. He does all these amazing things. And the Bible's full of these stories of God showing his power, showing his greatness, showing his glory. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do a series on it. To take some of these stories that might be familiar to us, but maybe we haven't spent enough time really going down in into those stories to figure out what it's really teaching us about God because we're trying to show you how great God is, trying to remind ourselves of the greatness of God by looking at these stories, the greatest stories ever told are in our Bible. And so this story is the story of Exodus. If, if the psalmist says, hey, tell people about the great works, the great stories of God doing his amazing things, there's a lot of stories to choose from all throughout the Bible, but the story of the Exodus, what God does with Moses in this story, there's so many different elements. There's so many different parts of this. In fact, I've been joking with everybody. We're covering 34 chapters in the sermon today. So if you want to go ahead and like get comfortable, that would be a good time to do that. There's just all kinds of stuff that God is doing in this story. Now, the people of God are in Egypt and the people of God are in trouble. In fact, they're, they're being treated horribly. Which is interesting because they got to Egypt because of another story that we're not actually talking about. We did a series on Genesis a few years ago, and we walked through that story of Joseph. But God did some amazing things in the life of Joseph to get him to Egypt, to bring him up to a place of prominence and power in Egypt. And then God used Joseph being in Egypt to save his people by bringing them to Egypt. And so God rescued his people at one time by getting them all to Egypt where they could have food and they could survive. And now, 400 years later, the people are slaves, they're, they're, they're being oppressed, they're being persecuted, and God's going to raise up another leader to, get, to rescue or save his people by getting them out of Egypt. It's all God's plan. It's all what God is doing, and we learn so much about God when we see that. But the people are... They, they become slaves because there became a Pharaoh who, after Joseph died, a Pharaoh came to power, another king in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, didn't know the story, didn't know what he had done. And so he began to look at the Hebrews and saw, saw they were a nuisance. They were, they were uh, too many of them. They were a threat to them. And he began to oppress them. In fact, it got to the point where uh, the Pharaoh said, if a, if a Hebrew, if an Israelite boy is born, kill him. Let the girl survive, but if there's a boy born, just kill him. We don't need any more of these people in our land. And the Hebrew midwives who got that instruction didn't do it. They refused to do it. And so then he said, well, since that's not happening, if there's a baby boy, if there's an infant boy, then you know, throw him in the, in the Nile and let him drown. So he was coming at his people. There's a, it was a horrible, horrible situation. The, the, as slaves, they were having to work really, really hard, but they were also being oppressed and persecuted, and, and, and their lives were threatened. Moses was born into that situation. Moses was born at a time where they were uh, killing the babies or throwing them into the Nile, and his parents hid him for three months just to try to keep him, you know, keep anybody from knowing. They, wanted, they didn't want to have him killed, but you can't, like, you, you got a baby, you can't hide him for very long. Somebody's going to figure it out at one point, point. and so at three months into it, they were like, okay, we got to do this or we're going to be in trouble, but instead of just throwing him in the Nile, they made a basket and they put him in that and they set him like to sail in the Nile. And then God was orchestrating that whole event. He brought uh, the princess, Pharaoh's daughter down and she hears the baby crying and God was doing all this behind the scenes to protect Moses because the plan that he has for Moses. And so she takes him in and raises him at his own, as her own, like an adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses grows up 
He becomes a man, and uh, he's, he's fully grown, and he's walking out one day. Now, he knows that he was raised as an Egyptian, but he's not an Egyptian. He's an Hebrew, he's an Israelite, and he sees an Egyptian who's beating an Israelite. And Moses looks around, sees no one else is watching, and he intervenes by killing the Egyptian. And he's like, okay, I'm going to bury him in the sand. No one will even know. It's all, it's all good. But the next day, somebody's like, hey, you're the guy that killed that Egyptian. In fact, there was a dispute between two Israelites. And he's like, y'all stop fighting with each other. Are you going to kill us too like you did? And then Moses knows, word has got out that I killed a man with my bare hands and I need to get out of town. And so Moses becomes a fugitive and flees for his life. And he goes to Midian, to the wilderness. In Midian, he finds a, a, a lady and he, uh, a man named Jethro who's her father and he takes this lady as his wife. He gets married. He settles down. He becomes a shepherd and he spends 40 years as a shepherd out in Midian, out in the wilderness before God is going to use him to do this exodus thing to bring his people out. Which is, it almost feels random, doesn't it? I mean, God's got this plan, and he's orchestrating this plan. And why in the world is Moses spending 40 years just in obscurity? Why is he spending 40 years as a shepherd? It seems really, really random that he would do that, unless you know anything at all about shepherding and sheep. Because that's, that's not an easy job. Shepherding is difficult, mainly because sheep are so stupid. And sheep are so stubborn, they're so hard to lead, they continually, they can't even find their own food. you got to like, hey, here's the food, see the grass, eat that, right? They, they don't do what they're supposed to do. They don't go where they're supposed to go. You're, they're always, there's a threat around them all the time. They can't protect themselves, they can't lead themselves, they can't do anything, and they continually do the same stupid things over and over and over again, which is maybe why the Bible says that we're like sheep, but that's a whole other deal. So, and so Moses is a shepherd, and it probably... If you think about it, it might be how God was preparing him for the task that God had called him to do. Because he's going to lead two million Israelites out of Egypt and wander through the wilderness. And they're going to prove to be really, really stupid, really, really stubborn, and really, really hard to lead. So this shepherding thing may not be as random as we think. It may be just part of God's preparing Moses for the task. And one day he was tending his father-in-law, Jethro's flocks. And he walks by this mountain they call the Mountain of God, Mountain Horeb, and... He looks over and he sees this bush that's, it's on fire, but it's not burning up. So the bush is not being consumed. It's not burning up. The branches aren't burning, but there's a fire in the bush, and that catches his attention. I need to see what in the world's going on over there. And so Moses began to approach, and then God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. One of these amazing stories you're somewhat familiar with. Like God begins to speak to him. He says, take off, your, take off your sandals. Moses slips out of the Birkenstocks, and it's holy ground. And he moves towards God, and God begins to introduce himself. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then God, if you've got Exodus 3 still open, and I want you to keep it open, in verse 7, God begins to unveil his plan. And in verse 7, here's what he says. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. So God shows up, and he says, Moses. I'm aware of the problem in Egypt. I know what's going on. I know about the suffering of my people in Egypt. And this, just this one little part of the story, when God shows up and says, here's what's about to happen, it's a reminder for us that every single one of us need. And it's this reminder that God is always aware of the struggles of his people. God is always aware of our struggles. 
And that's an important reminder because sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes it doesn't feel like he's in tune. Sometimes it just doesn't feel like he's really paying attention because he's not doing the things that we think he should be doing or doing them the way that we should think we think he should be doing them. And so sometimes it feels like God got distracted. But here's what he says. He sees, he hears, and he knows. Look, I've surely seen the affliction of my people. He's not distracted. He's not, he's not preoccupied. He sees what's going on. He hears their cries. He's not turned a, a deaf ear towards his people. He hears their cries of distress, their cries for help, and he knows their suffering. He's Involved. He didn't create the world, set it into motion, and then remove himself from it. The Bible tells us over and over again that our God is intimately involved in the details of our lives, that he's always at work, that he's doing things. And so he sees, he hears, and he knows about the struggle of the Israelites in Egypt. And that's a good reminder on the surface, but it's a good reminder a little bit below the surface when you remember that he knows your struggle. He sees what you're struggling with. He has heard your cry. Even if it doesn't feel like he has, he does. The Bible tells us over and over and over again who God is and what he's all about and what he does for us. And we know that he sees the struggles. You guys come into here on Sundays and it's really easy, right? The temptation in our culture is to make it look like everything's fine. We got it all together. But we all know that we're all struggling with something. Some of, the, some of you are struggling with something that just surfaced this week, and some of you are struggling with something that's been, been a struggle for a while, and you've been waiting and waiting and pleading and hoping for an answer. And Man, just please hear this today. God sees it. God hears it. He knows the struggles that you have. He knows everything about those struggles. Not only that, but when you bring your struggles to him, when, you, when you're open and honest and you come looking for help, like when you, I, man, God, I failed, I messed up. I, man, this last week was, was one of my worst, and I came in here today to worship and get some help and get some encouragement and get some reminders that God does not turn away from us in our struggles. He moves towards us in our struggles. He sees, he hears, he knows. And that doesn't, that doesn't make him pull back away from us. It makes him move in to comfort us. Because that's what this story is going to tell us, is that God is not just proclaiming, yes, I know. He's saying, now I'm going to do something about it. Verse 8, I have come down, God says, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bring them to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Lagmites, the Lagtites, all of them. I'm, I, I've come down to, to help them. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to I'm going to rescue them and bring them out, and not just to for for just to get them out, but I'm going to I prepared a place for them, a promised land, with milk and honey that I'm going to give to them. I'm going to take care of my people. So he says, I'm I'm aware of their struggle, and I'm going to do something about it. It's that reminder that God is not just aware of our struggles, but God helps, comforts, and delivers His people. This is the God that we serve. He's, he's there to help us. He's there to comfort us. He's there to deliver us. This is how he moves towards us. Now, don't miss this. 400 years. He hasn't delivered them for 400 years. Now's the time that he decided to do this. So every single time you think that God's been slow... That God hasn't answered me yet, and it makes you start to think that maybe he's not seeing, maybe he's not hearing, maybe he doesn't know. 
Just remember, 400 years of suffering before God said, now's the time that I'm going to deliver my people. We just, sometimes we just have to trust that God's timing is better than our timing, that God's way is better than our way. His way is higher, and it's also better. And we can trust him that he knows, he sees, he hears, he's helping and comforting even when he hasn't delivered us. Sometimes we just want the deliverance and he's like, no, I'm giving you help and I'm giving you comfort in the midst of the struggle so that at the right time I will finally bring you out of it. When you've learned what you need to learn, when you've grown the way that you need to grow, then he brings us out of it. And so God promises that he helps, he comforts and delivers his people and that's what he's promising here and and this time. But sometimes it's not when we want him to do it. It's not as soon as we want him to do it. It's not the way that we wanted him to do it. But man, the God that we serve is aware of our struggles and he's ready to help us. And at the right time, in God's right time, he delivers his people. And then he says to Moses, and I'm going to do all this by using you. Look at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is what God says. Hey, I know what's going on in, in Egypt. I know my people are suffering, and I'm, I'm come. It's time. I'm going to do something about it, and I'm going to use you to do it. And, guys, that's a reminder that's all the way through our scripture. God uses his people, us, to accomplish his purposes. God does that over and over again. He takes people and says, oh, there's a problem over here. I'm going to raise up this person. I'm going to send them over there to bring help and encouragement and comfort and deliverance. God uses people to accomplish what God does, to accomplish his purposes in our lives, which is one of the reasons why community is so important. It's not just something that's important here. It's a, a community is important for all of us. We need people in our lives that will be the source of help and comfort, sometimes even leading us into a path of deliverance that God is using in our lives. We need to be open and honest with our struggles with people around us so that we can receive the help and comfort from God through them. That's what he does. That you come in here with struggles and you need to recognize that one of the ways that God answers, and maybe even the most often way that God answers is it by somebody else in the room, somebody else in your community group. When you share the struggle, when you, man, this has been hard, and God brings someone alongside of you to bring you the help, to bring you the comfort, or to show you the path out of it. This is what he does. Now, we just talked about Moses. He's a fugitive of justice. He's been hiding out for 40 years because he killed a man in Egypt and he had to run. And so when you look on the surface, this is not the guy you would pick. The job that he's about to be given by God, that's not the guy that you would pick. He's so unlikely for that task, which is exactly how God works all the time. He picks unlikely people and uses them to accomplish his purposes because he gets the glory. It's so clear that it's all about him and not about us. And so he picks this guy who's a fugitive who tried it his way maybe and it didn't work and now he's just been hiding out. He says, I'm going to send you back to talk to Pharaoh, the unknown obscure shepherd of the wilderness is going to go confront the most powerful, one of the most powerful men on the planet. And all that seems so unlikely. It's exactly how God works. When you feel like I'm an unlikely choice to serve or to share something or be on a mission trip or to join a serving team, like that's, that's the people God uses. He uses people who feel unlikely, and he uses people who feel inadequate. And Moses felt so inadequate. If you keep reading the story, verse 11, Moses said to God, after he said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, Moses said to God, who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who, who am I? God, are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, what do you think? God, what are you thinking that I have that's going to allow me to go talk to Pharaoh and lead all these people? Surely it's more than just a shepherding thing, right? Mo- Moses looks at God and says, uh-uh, I, don't think this, I don't think you chose the right guy. I don't think I have what it takes. And his inadequacy is leading the way. His, his response is, no, I don't, I don't have this. I, don't, I can't do this. And I love God's response in verse 12. God said, but I'll be with you. And that's all you need. He doesn't look at Moses and say, Moses, stop beating yourself up, man. You got so much potential. You got so many gifts and talents, man. Everybody likes you. He doesn't look at Moses with a pep talk. He says, yeah, Moses, it's not about you. I'll be with you. Moses says, who am I? And God says, it doesn't matter. Who you are doesn't matter. What you have doesn't matter. What you bring to the table doesn't matter. I don't need it. I'm, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be me working through you. And that's all you need. I will be with you. <laughs> when you feel inadequate, I think it's God setting you up to be used by him. And it's a reminder that you need that it's not about your talents, it's not about your gifts, it's not about your abilities, not about all the personality traits that you bring to the table that are so great. No, it's all about God saying, if you serve me, if you follow me, if you join the mission, if you join a team, I'll be with you. I'll do this for you. That's what, he, that's what Moses needed to hear. That's what we all need to hear, that it's not about us. It's all about God. I will be with you. But for whatever reason, it wasn't enough. This conversation in Exodus 3 and chapter 4, it's so fascinating to me because Moses keeps coming back with his excuses. And God keeps telling him, no, I've chosen you for this. doesn't matter what you're thinking. I'm going to be with you. In fact, the next thing Moses says is, okay, so who are you? You said, you're going to be with me, but who are you really? Like, what will I tell them? Who am I going to tell them sent me? And so he's already, God's already said, hey, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God introduces himself to Moses here in a way that even Abraham didn't know God. He says, I am the great I am. He gives him his name that, that even Abraham, the patriarchs, didn't have. He says, you need to know that I am, I am. I always have been. I'm the eternal God. I'm the creator God. I'm the, the, the one true and living God. I've always been. I always will be. I am is my name, which is so interesting because every excuse Moses gives him is basically saying, well, I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm not good enough. I can't speak. I can't do this. And God says, Right? But I am. Moses is not. God is. I am is how he introduces himself. So Moses, okay, so now I know. Okay, that's great. And how are they going to believe me? Why are they going to listen? Why, why would Pharaoh listen, of course, but even the Israelites, why would they let me lead them? Maybe for 400 years they've kind of forgotten who you are. So how, how are you going to make sure that they're going to listen to my words? And here's what God says. He says, I'm going to do things through you that will be so obvious that it's me that everyone will know that I'm with you. I'm going to do signs and wonders through you, and it will be my power 
on display. That's what people are going to see. And he says, let me show you what I mean. He says, take your shepherd's staff and throw it on the ground. And Moses is like, okay. And he throws it on the ground. And it became a snake, and then Moses ran from it, which that's what you're supposed to do, by the way. You throw a stick down on the ground, and it becomes a snake. You start running, and you don't ever stop. And so Moses runs from the snake, and then God says, hey, pick that snake up. Pick it up by the tail. And there's some words that Moses said that's not recorded in our translation right there. I'm pretty sure. At least I would have said them. And then he goes and he, and he picks up the snake by the tail and it turns back into his shepherd's staff. And then God says, Moses, put your hand up in your cloak. And he pulled it out and he pulled it out and it was leprous, covered in leprosy. He says, put it back in your cloak and pull it out. And it was completely normal and healthy. God says, I'm going I'm to do things through you, and all the people will see my power, and that's why they'll follow you. That's why they'll believe me. You just trust me that I'll do things that you can't do, that you, you, didn't even, you never even thought you could do. You never even wanted to do. And so Moses is watching this. He just experienced those crazy miracles, and he looks at God, and he goes, oh, God, you may not know this, but I'm horrible at speaking in front of people. I, I can't do that part. Nope. Nope. Failed speech in middle school. I can't do it, right? And God looks at him and says, who made your mouth? I, I created you. I made your mouth. I made your tongue. I, I, Moses, remember when I just said, I'll be with you? It's not about you. It's not about your ability. I will give you the words. I will teach you what you're supposed to say. I'm going to speak through you. Just trust me. I'll do it. doesn't matter what your skill set is. And after all this, Moses looks at him and says, Oh, Lord, please send somebody else. You you don't have the right guy. And that, God's so patient with him up until this point, and that's when God gets angry at him. But he doesn't really remove the responsibility he just says okay here's the deal I know you probably need some encouragement your brother Aaron he'll go with you take your older brother Aaron if you need to he can speak for you since you don't like speaking Aaron can speak and I'll use both of you so you're gonna go now you get to go with Aaron y'all get to do this together which is really really interesting because most of the time in the rest of the story you see Moses speaking you don't see Aaron speaking God uses Moses he gives him the words he 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 does things that only God could do. But Moses has all these excuses, and God just keeps pushing back. It's not about you. It's about what I'm going to do through you. And whatever excuse you have for why you're not serving, why you're not engaging, why you're not doing what you know God wants you to do, he's called you to do, he's opened up an opportunity, whatever excuse you have, God comes back over and over and over again with, oh, I'll be with you, and I'll work through you. And that's all you need. It's, it's more than enough. For every single one of us. So Moses and Aaron, they go back to Egypt and they go to confront Pharaoh and they go up to Pharaoh and they're like, hey, we, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true and living God and all the Hebrew people, that's our God and we're gonna, we need to go worship him so you need to let our people go so we can go out into the wilderness and we can worship our God, make a sacrifice to him and Pharaoh says no. I'm not doing that. They're doing all this work for me. Why would the work stop? In fact, if they got time to be thinking about worshiping, I'm going to make their work harder. And God told Moses, hey, when you go, he's not going to let them. He's not going to release them. 
I'm going to have to do a bunch of signs and wonders and defeat him before he will actually finally let the people go. So just prepare yourself for that. Pharaoh's heart is hard towards me. He's going to harden it even more. And then God's going to harden it on top of that. And so Pharaoh says no. And then the plagues begin. This is this confrontation, this battle between God and Pharaoh through Moses begins. And the first plague is water to blood. He turns the water of the Nile River, which was the source of life for that whole country. He's turned it all to blood. So they've, 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 their source of life, everything came from the Nile, and it's all blood now. So they're having to dig wells somewhere else to find water. And that plague is that first plague begins the confrontation, begins the battle. The second plague, there's ten plagues, and you're probably familiar with it. The second plague is frogs. Frogs everywhere. I mean, in every room of their house, there's just frogs covering the floor. Everything. In the kitchen. And, and, and everywhere, there's frogs. <laughs> That's, that'd be horrible. I remember when I was a kid, my brother and I, we did a lot of hunting with my dad, and my brother was crawling into a bunk bed in this cabin. We were on a hunting trip one time, and when he crawled into the bed, uh, a scorpion bit him on the toe, or stung him, bit him, stung him, whatever. I don't know what scorpions do, but he chose violence, right? And the scorpion, and they always do. And so he stung him on the toe, and it was, I mean, he's my younger brother, so I laughed and made fun of him, but then I kind of got freaked out. And for the, like, to this day, I'm still traumatized by that. To this day, if I'm not in my own bed, when I get into bed, before I get in, I, I check every crevice of that bed, every, every sheet, all the way down, I'm looking for anything that could get me, right? Any scorpion, spider, chupacabra, anything in there that could get me, I don't want it. Can you imagine climbing into your bed and pulling back the sheets and just frogs jump out? Imagine tucking in your kids. They're almost, almost asleep and you put them in bed and all of a sudden you lay them on a whole bunch of frogs. Like that's a meltdown waiting to happen. That's resetting the whole timeline. There's frogs everywhere. Pharaoh won't let his people go. In fact, there's times when Pharaoh just looks at it and says, no big deal, not letting them go. Sometimes it's so bad, he says, okay, I'll let them go. And then Moses says, God, he said to let us go, take it away, take away the plague. And then Pharaoh's like, nah, I'm just, I've changed my mind. You can't go. So plague after plague after plague. Plague three is gnats. Gnats everywhere. Gnats have no purpose except to annoy us. And they're just all everywhere. All the people are covered in gnats all the time. That wasn't bad enough. So the plague number four is flies. Flies in every room of your house. Swarms of flies. If there's one fly in our kitchen, our whole family shuts down. Until we kill the fly, we're not eating, we're not going anywhere, get the fly swatter, there's one fly, and he is annoying us like crazy. And this is swarms of flies everywhere. And then he kills the livestock that are out in the fields. So just so you know, he's, these plagues are not affecting the Israelites living in Goshen, they're only affecting the Egyptians. So God is showing his power and his greatness Kills the livestock in the fields. Then he covers all the people of Egypt with boils. So much so they can't even stand and confront Moses anymore because they're in so much pain with the boils. He then sends the, the hailstorm of all hailstorms that wipes out everything. Kills plants, kills everything. I mean, after that hailstorm, everybody in town needed a roof. Every one of them. And then he sends locusts to wipe out everything the hailstorm didn't get. 
Every plant that was somehow spared in the hailstorm, the locusts come in and eat everything. Swarms of locusts, just plague after plague of Pharaoh going, okay, okay, relent, relent, I'll let them go. And it's gone? Oh, no, you can't go. And plague number nine is darkness for three days. And not just turn the lights out, but they could not see. In Goshen, where the Israelites were, they had light, normal. In Egypt, they couldn't see. They couldn't even see somebody standing in front of them. It says that they just sat in their room in their beds for three days. That darkness is kind of foreshadowing what is to come. And then the tenth plague, the one that finally got Pharaoh to relent, was the death of the firstborn child, firstborn son. And there was a very specific instruction with that, the Passover, where God told Moses, hey, tell all the Israelites, take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take some of the blood from that unblemished, spotless lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of death comes in tonight to execute this plague and, and, to, and to kill all the firstborn uh, sons, the angel will see the blood on your doorpost and he will pass over your house and no one in your house will die. Foreshadowing. Last week we talked about Abraham and Isaac as being a whisper of the gospel in the Old Testament as a shadow of Jesus who's to come. And here's another very, very clear whisper, another very clear shadow of the gospel. Jesus Christ shows up and John says, behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. And his blood, when it covers over us, God passes over us for judgment because he put his judgment on his son instead of us and brings us into the family of God and gives us life forever. And so the Passover story wasn't just a story of a plague. It was something to prepare their hearts for Jesus to come. In fact, that's why they celebrated it every year, kind of reenacted it to remember God's deliverance and to look forward to God's ultimate deliverance that was going to come by the hand of Jesus. And that night the angel of death came in and struck down the firstborn sons of all of Egypt. And there was lots of mourning and lots of wailing. And Pharaoh finally broke and he said, okay, you can go. And Moses leads all the people out. And they get to the, they get to the Red Sea. And they stop at the Red Sea, and they don't know how we're going to get across the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh, of course, changes his mind once again. God hardens his heart once again, and he turns and he sends an army to go get them. I shouldn't have let them go. Go get them. And the people are at the Red Sea, and they look back, and they see Pharaoh's army coming at them. And then they immediately, they forgot all that God had done. They forgot all of it. And they said, I can't believe, Moses, you brought us out here to die. We could have just died in Egypt, but you brought us out here to die in the desert. And then God does what only God can do. He says, Moses, hold out your arms. And then God makes the Red Sea, the, the water, stand up, make a wall, and the dry ground underneath where the, where the Red Sea used to be, and the Israelites are able to walk across the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh's army comes in, they try to follow them, and then God makes the water goes, go back over them and drowns them all. Pharaoh was drowning all the baby boys of Israel, and his army got drowned by God in the Red Sea. Why is God doing all this? I mean, we know he's delivering his people, but why this way? Why would this showdown with Pharaoh? Why is he doing this for people who forget so quickly? And there's this truth that we need to grab a hold of this story. We need to grab a hold of it in every story, and that is this, that God brings glory to himself through his work with his people. It's ultimate. That God is always, always, ultimately bringing glory to himself by how he works through us. 
by what he does in our lives, by what he does for us. His deliverance for us is always, ultimately, it's great for us, but it's ultimately for his glory to be on display. That's why Pharaoh's heart was hard and God hardened it more because it says that he was raising Pharaoh up to show God's greatness against Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. He was showing how much greater he was, that all the nations would see these great works and they would see the greatness of God. That's what he was doing here. In fact, the Red Sea thing, when the people turned back and they said, oh man, we're going to die here. We could have just died in Egypt. This is a waste of time. And they gave up and they forgot what God had done. Psalm 106, I want you to see this, tells us what God was doing behind the scenes and all that. Psalm 106, this will be on the screen, verse 7 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 8, look at this. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. They rebelled and forgot immediately. As soon as they got out, oh, man, we don't have any way to get across. And God saved them anyway because he was doing it for his glory. He saved a rebellious, stubborn, forgetful people because he was showing the world how great he is. It's not about how great these people are. It's about how great God is. And so God is always bringing glory to himself through the work with his people. And as they begin this journey on the other side of the Red Sea through the wilderness, it's, it's absolutely crazy how fickle these people are. I mean, three days after the Red Sea, they, they, they're thirsty, and they can't find any water except they have some water, but it's too bitter to drink, and they're like, this is horrible. God's left us. Three days. God throws a, tells Moses to throw a log in the water, and it turns it sweet, and he provides for them. Uh, uh, about a month or maybe a month and a half after that, they're starving, they're, and they're like, man, we should have just stayed in Egypt. At least we had food. And then God begins to provide manna from heaven every morning. And some of you think that man is bread, and it probably is, but the word manna means what is it, which kind of turns into who's on, for, who's on first uh, routine in our Bibles. Hey, what are you eating over there? What is it? And that's what I asked you. Can you just tell me? Well, I'm eating what is it. No, why are you asking me? I'm asking you. I'm trying to figure out what is that that you're eating. What is it? That's, well, anyway, it's a whole different deal. So he provides quail at night. Eventually, he leads Moses up on this mountain and gives him the Ten Commandments and the law, which, side note, he gives, him the, gives the people of God the commandments to obey after he delivered them, not before. He, they don't have to obey to earn their deliverance. He delivers them and says, you can respond to me by living this way. Foreshadow of the gospel. Jesus doesn't wait until we clean ourselves up, fix everything, and get our lives right. He delivers us when we were still sinners. And then he gives us his commandments to follow as a response to who he is and what he's done for us. No different than the law. And while Moses is up there getting the law, there's a cloud, there's storm, like there's, there's also, there's lightning, there's crazy stuff. They know that God's doing something up there with Moses, but apparently it took too long. And so like, we don't know where he's gone. We just like, make us a calf, we'll worship a calf. Make us a gold calf. These people forget and forget and forget. And God delivers them, and then they forget, and they turn, and God's left us. And this whole story reminds us that God leads, he loves, he leads, and he patiently provides for his people. It's not about the Israelites, not even about Moses, it's about God. He loves, he leads, 
And he patiently, over and over and over again, provides for these people who keep forgetting, who keep turning their back, who keep wanting to go back to where they were in slavery. Every single time. And God just continually is patient with them. He, he punishes their sin and his rebellion, but he never leaves them. He never, he never stops. He's going to eventually get his people to the promised land because he loves, he leads, and he patiently provides for his people. And that's what he does for you and for me. Sadly, we're not a whole lot different from the Israelites many times, aren't we? We, God delivers us and he, he helps us and he comforts us and he gets us through a really difficult thing. And we're like, thank you so much. God be praised. And we keep on going with our life and something else happens, some struggles, some trials, some tests. And we're like, why? Why would God do this? We forget. So easily forget how he provides. So easily forget how he loves. So easily forget how he leads us. All the way down in the story in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God proclaims he is. That's who God is to us, patiently loving, leading, and providing for us because he's a God abounding in love, slow to anger, so faithful to his people, even when his people are not. We get to worship, serve, and follow the God of that Bible. Let's pray and thank him for that. God, thank you for these stories and how they point us to your greatness. They remind us of your greatness. They remind us of your faithfulness. They remind us of your power. They remind us of all that you're doing. So God, help us to learn from these stories. Help us to see that. Help us to see how great you are. And then help us to respond with trust and obedience and following you with our lives. And we're so thankful for how they remind us of that and the truth that they open up for us to remember and proclaim. In Jesus' name we pray that. Amen.